An off-duty police officer was killed, a suspect identified, and yet the case remains unsolved after nearly 35 years. But the key to the case is out there, and one tip could bring it all together. I'm Charlie, and welcome to Crimelines. Welcome to day 12 of 12 Days of Crime Lines. We are wrapping it up with a cold case out of California. This episode had several sources. All of them are linked to my show notes, but I did want to point in the direction of an sfgate.com article from 2003, which helped fill in a lot of the blanks from the early reporting on the case. Lester Garnier grew up in San Francisco, attending the Mission Dolores Church with his parents and his sister Margot. Lester was a popular and focused student, working at the age of 12 as a peer counselor for the Columbia Park Boys Club. The club named him Boy of the Year when he was 17. This meant that he was nominated regionally. He then won the regional title and moved on to nationals. He traveled to Washington, D.C., where he met President Ford and came in second place. Lester talked about becoming a priest as a child, but then found his dream was to become a police officer, which he did in December 1980 when he joined the San Francisco Police Force. Lester took the same drive from his youth into this job. He received multiple commendations. One time, it was for helping arrest three armed men who were robbing a fast food restaurant in 1981. Another was after arresting a man who was trying to kill his own son in 1983. In 1987, Lester was given praise for having the lowest percentage of citizen complaints during arrests. Even the people he arrested didn't have room to complain about him. He ran things by the book, keeping himself and the people he was arresting calm for everyone's safety. Lester was also known as a bit of a charmer, and this served him well in 1985 when he was moved to the vice squad. He worked undercover, investigating crimes known as pimping and pandering. Pimping, which I'm sure I don't have to define for you, but will anyway, is when someone receives the earnings of a sex worker and a panderer is someone who either persuades someone to work in prostitution or to remain there. People who are guilty of one are often guilty of the other, so they're usually charged with both. So basically sex traffickers, though Lester would also do undercover work that included arresting women who were soliciting. Lester spent about four years in vice when he started looking at other opportunities. He wanted to take care of his parents as well as have nice things for himself, and he knew that wouldn't be easy on a vice cop's salary. He bought a fixer-upper house and did the work on it himself until it was ready for them to move in. Then he moved his parents in with him so that he could help them out. Lester worked a 7 p.m. to 3 a.m. shift at the police department, so he had some time he could use to work side jobs, and he worked as a store security guard during daylight hours. He used this extra money to buy his pride and joy, a blue 1984 Corvette. 
But Lester had plans to take things even farther and work for himself. He realized that hot dog vendors individually didn't make a lot of money because it's hard to do volume by yourself. So he came up with a business plan where he would start with one cart and use the profits to fund a second cart and an employee, and then a third cart and another employee. Soon he would have a chain and would be making a profit from all of them. Lester was taking an idea he had put into action as a teenager. When he was a teen, he took on multiple summer jobs, and then he subcontracted them, like his newspaper route, to his friends, paying them some of the money and keeping a little for himself. This wasn't just an idea that Lester had, but didn't act on. In July 1988, Lester had his first cart already purchased, and he and his best friend, who was going to be his business partner, had applied for their permit, and they were waiting for it to come through. On Sunday, July 10th, 1988, 30-year-old Lester Garnier had dinner with his parents at their house, but then he left suddenly after getting two phone calls. From what has been released, all we know is that one of the phone calls was from a woman, and Lester didn't come home that night. Around nine in the morning on the 11th, a maintenance man at a shopping center in Walnut Creek, California, saw a 1984 Corvette parked at an odd angle in an area of the parking lot that was otherwise empty. Walnut Creek is a neighboring town to where Lester lived, and it was about 10 minutes from his house to the shopping center. The man approached the car because it looked like the driver was sleeping. But when he tried to rouse him, he couldn't. He called the police to report that there was an unconscious man in a car. When first responders arrived, they found the car unlocked and the window rolled down. They looked a little closer than the maintenance man had and saw that this man was dead, having been shot twice at close range once in the head, and once in the abdomen. When they were looking for ID in the car, they found Lester Garnier's badge and wallet in the glove compartment. Walnut Creek Police then called the San Francisco police to ask if they had an officer who drove a blue Corvette. They were able to confirm that this was Lester. Lester's family had the same fears that the families of most officers have, that they'll be hurt in the line of duty. So they rested a little easier during the times Lester was off work. His sister Margot told SFGate that when she was informed of her brother's death, she thought they must have made a mistake because he was off duty. She never expected to be informed that he was murdered while just going out one night in his free time. There weren't a lot of clues at the scene. Lester's hands were positioned up like he had raised them before being shot in the stomach from the side. He may have even been reaching for the gun at the time. It was after this initial shot that Lester was then shot execution style in the head. Lester's car keys were missing, 
It was initially reported that his gun was also missing, but later reports cleared up that it had been found at his home. He had left it there on account of being off-duty. Based on a shell casing at the scene, it was determined Lester was shot with an AMT 380, which is a small pistol that a lot of officers carry as a backup weapon. As far as forensics, like fingerprints, they found a bunch of smudged prints, and only one with any amount of detail. This one was on the car window. But it turned out to be unsuitable for making comparisons with the technology they had at the time. Now, if this murder happened today, the car would have been swabbed for touch DNA. But this was far before we had technology to test such small samples. The police canvassed for witnesses, and they were fortunate here because there were some. One witness was driving by the parking lot late at night and saw a woman get out of the passenger side of Lester's car. This witness said the woman walked over to the driver's side, looked inside, and then left the scene. This happened around 11 to 11.30 p.m. The woman was described as tall, ugly, and blonde. Under hypnosis, this witness gave more details of what the woman looked like. Her blonde hair was straight and shoulder length. She was wearing a white or beige skirt and a jacket, and she was tall and slender. A sketch was made, and they showed it to a second witness, who also saw a similar-looking woman that night, but he saw her with someone else. This man was a carpet layer and was working in one of the nearby buildings. He heard what he thought were fireworks, but being that it was within a week of the 4th of July, he just assumed people were firing off their leftovers. But he looked out and saw two women walking away from the area where Lester's car was found the next day. He said the women got into two different vehicles. One got into a pickup truck and the other got into a white or gray car that may have been a Datsun. The two women then drove off. He said that one of the women was about 5'6 and 110 pounds and in her late 20s. The second woman appeared to be in her mid-30s and was taller, but just as slim. And there may have been a third witness. A little behind the scenes on how I put these episodes together, I go into the newspaper archives, I go day by day from when the case first was reported on, and follow the way it unfolded in the media. That's my research process. It's not how I put the episodes together, but it is where I start when I'm taking notes. With these older cases, Sometimes it's hard to follow when the news articles don't use names, but rather descriptors. So you'll see an article that calls someone an employee, but then the next day's write-up has them as a carpet layer. But then a week later, they're simply labeled as a man in the area. Now, these could be three witnesses, but they could be three ways to refer to one witness. If there was a third witness, independent of the two we already discussed, this person basically backed up the timeline of this happening around 11 p.m. 
There also seemed to be some debate initially over whether there were two women in the parking lot that night or three. So we have one that was seen getting out of the car by a witness. Then there were two seen walking across the parking lot by a different witness. Now it is possible there was one shooter and two accomplices or a shooter and two witnesses, but it seems likely that the investigation has landed on this being two women total and the woman seen getting out of the car was also one of the ones walking across the parking lot. Though it was dark, it is believed that the witnesses had a pretty good view of what was happening because the car was parked under a streetlight. But regardless if there were two or three women, the police did believe that the one seen getting out of the car was the one who fired the shots. And though multiple theories emerged, all of them pointed towards this being targeted. This was not a random crime. Lester's parents said that Lester got those two phone calls and left suddenly around 9 p.m. But there had been a third phone call. Police spoke with some of Lester's friends who said they had plans to meet up with Lester in San Francisco, but he didn't show. He called them from his car phone about 20 minutes after he left his house and said it was getting late and he wasn't going to make it. From this 9.20-ish phone call until Lester's car was seen in the parking lot around 11 or 11.30, no one knows where he went or what he was doing. One or both of the calls Lester got at home may have been the cause for his change in plans. Unfortunately, those calls were untraceable. But whatever Lester was doing, it wasn't something he felt was risky because he didn't take his gun with him. So the police looked into his personal life and who might be in it that would want him dead, who he wouldn't have seen as a threat. Lester had gone through a breakup recently, and his ex was a blonde woman who dyed her hair dark shortly after Lester's murder. They had dated for three years, and their relationship was rocky much of the time. People told the police that his ex was a jealous and possessive person. They broke up about a month before the murder, though Margot, his sister, said the girlfriend was at the family home on the afternoon before Lester's death. So at the time of his death, things seemed to be possibly amicable or amicable enough. Plus, she had an alibi. She was in San Francisco that night, and she was seen out in public. The police could verify this because she and her new boyfriend got into an argument while they were out, and it caused enough of a scene that others saw and remembered it. Another angle explored was Lester's work in the police force, particularly his undercover vice work that he had been doing for the previous four years. In interviewing sex workers Lester had previously arrested, they couldn't find anyone with any serious complaint about him. Now, it's weird to say that they liked him because he was an arresting officer, but that's what the reporting essentially says. And it's in line with what we know about him having the lowest percentage of citizen complaints during arrests. But the police did find, using phone records, that Lester did call massage parlors 
in his off-duty hours. And I will assume they mean massage parlor in the euphemistic way. And they are talking about a place that fronts as a massage parlor, but actually provides sex services. Illicit massage parlors don't exactly keep records of who comes and goes. And Lester's sister told the SF Gate that she believes the investigators jumped to the conclusion that Lester was doing something bad and didn't consider that he may have been following up on a lead since he worked busting places like that. He wouldn't be the first or only cop to do some basic work, like making phone calls, during off-duty hours. But if Lester was seeing sex workers privately or as part of his work, could this have been a meetup gone wrong? Maybe he got a call on a lead and went to meet with an informant or someone he thought was acting as an informant. Now, looking at the gun used, it was a common backup gun carried by some officers. So maybe it wasn't necessarily tied to a woman Lester knew, but others who knew her. It turned out Lester was investigating a local brothel that was frequented by other cops and even some politicians. Did Lester find out something about a fellow officer that they were afraid would get out? It seemed possible since just days before his murder, Lester had been on a stakeout. Maybe he had seen something that day. But it's also possible it was tied to something larger than someone being spotted at a bordello. As reported in the SF Gate article from 2003 that I keep referencing, the police searched Lester's home and took several items into evidence. One of those items was a surveillance tape, which wasn't from any of Lester's investigations. It was found hidden in his home office area. This was a tape that was from the FBI, and it was of a restaurant in San Francisco. This establishment was opened by a known member of the Gambino crime family. Because of who owned it, it was watched for signs of illegal happenings. When they saw nothing after a few months, they ended the operation and gave all of the videos to the San Francisco police, which the SF Gate said was standard practice for the FBI to do. But it seemed odd that Lester would have this tape, let alone have it stashed away somewhere in his home. Sources told the SF Gate that the tape may have implicated SFPD officers in something criminal. Maybe Lester was about to turn whistleblower. Several officers were questioned, especially female officers who fit the descriptions of the two women seen. Ballistics tests were run on at least eight guns, but no positive results were found. Along the lines of the killer being a woman in law enforcement, there was also a federal agent tied with the IRS who had her parked car explode from a car bomb in Walnut Creek just months after Lester's murder. Some suspect this was connected, though it's unclear how. Now, I mentioned before that some police officers were tied up in a local brothel, but so were some politicians. And the name Roger Boas has come up in relation to this case time and time again. A few months after Lester was killed in the fall of 1988, news broke about a large police sting in San Francisco that targeted brothels. And Roger Boas's name was on the client list. 
Well, not his real name, but an alleged alias. These brothels were part of a prostitution ring operated by a husband and wife team named Patrick Roberts and Kelly Lloyd, and their client list included a number of high-profile people, like people who were wealthy, politically connected, and even police officers. By far the worst part of this was that in these brothels were several girls who were literal girls, under 18, and those girls were targeted for exploitation. Roger Boas had been San Francisco's chief administrative officer under two mayors, and he was campaigning to be mayor himself when he was exposed. It was actually his mayoral campaign that brought him down because a sex worker saw his campaign poster and recognized him as a client she knew as George. A tip was called in that linked him to that alias. So how does this come back to Lester? Well, he worked in Vice. The arrests were made after his murder, but this case was the result of a long investigation that was occurring while Lester was still alive. As the arrest warrants were being prepared two months before Lester's murder, the team needed surveillance of the head of the ring, Lloyd and Roberts, so they could take them into custody without issue. Lester and his partner Chuck were tasked with watching them. A few days later, though, Lester's partner came back saying that their covers had been blown. Two months later, Lester was dead. The issue with connecting Lester to the busting of the prostitution ring was that he really wasn't that important in the grand scheme of this case. He wasn't the subject of the investigation. He wasn't a key witness or investigator. He had been tasked with staking out the couple, getting their locations and habits confirmed, and then passing on the information to the higher-ups. And Lester's death certainly did not stop anything from moving forward against anyone, and that included against Roger Boas, Kelly Lloyd, and Patrick Roberts. His death really didn't even slow things down, It was just months later that Roger Boas pleaded guilty to two charges related to this. And in less than a year after Lester's murder, Kelly Lloyd had been indicted, skipped town, featured on America's Most Wanted, and arrested again. So if Lester was targeted due to his involvement in the investigation, the actual motive is still unclear. With so many leads, it does seem strange that this case has had so little movement, particularly in the early years. And some say that's because the early investigation was not what it needed to be. Lester's friends and coworkers in San Francisco wanted to investigate the case, but they were told it was Walnut Creek's case and they were only to help if invited in. But then some San Francisco officers openly criticized Walnut Creek, basically saying they were too small of a police force and too inexperienced to handle an investigation of this size. And they claimed that they had not processed the scene thoroughly enough. As you can imagine, Walnut Creek didn't necessarily take this criticism well. And though the two police forces were supposed to be working towards a common goal, it seems from what people have said years later that it didn't exactly work out that way. 
1998, with Lester's case being cold for 10 years, the San Francisco police launched a reinvestigation of their own. What sparked the investigation appears to be an old internal memo that had been found. The memo referred to something an informant had said. They claimed they saw a drug dealer working with an off-duty police officer, and the drug dealer, according to the informant, was Asian and drove a Corvette. It would later come out that some believed Lester was the person the informant characterized as an Asian drug dealer, and one of his supervisors in Vice was the off-duty cop. It's unclear why they thought this, seeing as there was no evidence of this, and the supervisor they were claiming was the off-duty cop had actually written the memo himself. So why would he pass on information from an informant that implicated him in the crime? The memo turned out to be not important, except in the sense that it reopened this investigation. In 2001, the investigators looked at a piece of evidence that had been sitting there this whole time, that fingerprint from Lester's car window. It was not adequate in 1988 for matching, but now they thought it was enough detail to at least get a partial match using computers and programs that were not available in 1988. Maybe they'd get two or three hits. Maybe they'd even get 50 hits, but at least they would have something to work through to generate new leads. In early 2002, they took the print to the FBI and they actually got back one hit. It was to a woman named Catherine Kuntz whose prints were on file because three years after Lester's murder, she had been arrested for solicitation of murder. I couldn't find a lot of reporting on this charge, so this comes almost entirely from the SFGate article. Catherine lived in California in the Bay Area at the time of Lester's murder, but she and her husband Greg had moved to Virginia when he was stationed there. Catherine did live in California and in the Bay Area at the time of Lester's murder, but afterwards she and her husband moved to Virginia while he was stationed there. Catherine worked at a local convenience store with a co-worker named John Murchison. Catherine and John became friendly with a 17-year-old girl named Melinda Cooper who hung out at the store and has been described in the reporting as a runaway. According to what Melinda and John said later, Catherine wanted to divorce her husband Greg because he was abusive, but she was afraid she would lose her green card if she left him. She and Greg had met in Catherine's native Scotland, and she moved to the U.S. when they married. Catherine started talking about having Greg killed, and John helped recruit Melinda, who was a vulnerable teenager, into participating. Catherine promised Melinda $15,000 of Greg's life insurance money and a place to live if she would kill Greg. And you can only imagine how much money this sounded like to a 17-year-old with very little else in her life. On February 20th, 1991, Melinda went to Catherine and Greg's apartment and shot him. He was wounded but survived. Catherine, Melinda, and the coworker John were all arrested. Melinda and John admitted their roles, but Catherine denied it, and Greg believed his wife. He testified in her defense at trial, and the jury sided with him, 
Catherine was acquitted on the attempted murder charge. She was also charged with trying to get two other men to kill Greg, which they didn't attempt to do, and she pleaded out on a misdemeanor charge for that. Melinda and John were both convicted. After the trial was over, Greg and Catherine moved to Florida, but soon divorced. At the time of Lester's murder, like I said, they did live in the Bay Area. Greg was deployed a lot, and Catherine, who was in active addiction, used sex work to pay for drugs. There is no evidence Lester ever arrested her or that she was involved in any of his stings, but she did match the description of one of the women seen on the night of Lester's murder. And what appeared to be her fingerprint was found on the window. So the police absolutely believe she was at the scene and somehow involved in the murder, though they don't have all the details and they have not given a motive. Though authorities did interview Catherine more than once, she denied involvement. From when the print was identified in 2002 until 2008, the police investigated Catherine behind the scenes and her name was not in the press. Then in 2008, they went public with this information in the hopes someone who knew something would come forward. They felt pressured to move on this case because Catherine was in a Florida prison at the time, serving a sentence for a drug charge. On release, she was slated to be deported back to the UK. If Catherine did this, they wanted to arrest her before she disappeared to another country. Unfortunately, that did not happen. In 2009, Catherine was released from prison and deported to the UK. And the last that has been reported on her, she was living in Manchester. This case remains unsolved. The city and county of San Francisco has offered a reward of $250,000 for any information that leads to the arrest and prosecution of the person or persons responsible for the murder of Officer Lester Garnier. If you have any information about this case, call the Walnut Creek Police Department at 925-943-5844. This number will be in the show notes. 